Bibles, if you would, to Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9, if you're using the Bibles there in the chairs, it's page 327, Esther chapter 9. We're going to be finishing up the book of Esther this morning. Uh, It has, at least for me, I I hope that you've uh, learned some things out of this incredible book, Um, but it, it has been an incredible blessing to me doing the study and preparation for these sermons. Um, can can somebody tell me what a messianic Jew is? Okay, that 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 that's that's uh that that is what a messianic Jew looks like. Um, no, seriously, anybody? What what is a messianic Jew? Uh, well, it, no, well, more specifically, it's a Jew, somebody who's born Jewish, who has accepted the Messiah, hence the messianic Jew. Which the, who is the Messiah? Jesus Christ. So it is a born-again Jewish person. There you go. <clears throat> yeah, now that I got that out of the way. <clears throat> I, always, I always worry when I'm in the Old Testament and Rosemary's here. Does that make sense? Because she knows the Old Testament far better Far better than I do. So I always worry about messing something up. But anyway, uh, we're going to conclude the, the book of Esther this morning. How, how do you say Esther in Hebrew? Okay, I, I know it's it's not how we say it, but um, uh, anyway. You don't do those things anymore. Uh, I, 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 I'm going to give you some interesting facts about the book of Esther uh, that, that if, you were, if you've been here f- from the beginning of this study, you, you will know these facts. But if you haven't, then, then these uh, uh, facts, I, I think, are interesting, which I think tell really the story behind the story, if you would. The first thing is nowhere in the book of Esther is the name of God used. I find that to be incredibly interesting, that nowhere is God mentioned in this book. Mordecai and Esther, two of the most prominent figures in the book, are Jews, but are in, uh, what what would we say, Um, voluntary exile. They, the, 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 the truth is they were living in, in the nation of heathens, the, <clears throat> the, uh, the, the nation or the, the empire the, the, of Persia, but they could have gone back to Israel at any time that they wanted to. So they were living in Persia, but had they been faithful, good, good faithful Jews, they would have gone back to Israel. So that tells you something about their spiritual condition. And then the other element that a lot of people don't understand is that Esther and Mordecai were cousins. And that, you know the, a lot of this stuff is important as the story plays out. So I am going to give you a brief overview of the book, and then we'll conclude the, 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 the message with chapters 9 and 10. 
In chapter 1, you see the king demonstrate his power and his wealth. And, and in a, brunk, uh, a drunken rage, he, he exiles his queen. Uh, her, her name was Vashti. Uh, Vashti is, is, is no longer queen. She's exiled from the king. And thus the story begins. In between chapters 1 and 2, uh, and, and this is just pure history, um, Xerxes, the king, or uh, Ahasuerus, um, uh, uh, assembles his great army. In fact, at the time, it was the greatest army that had ever been assembled. And he marches against Greece. And in a single battle, his army is decimated. It, 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 you can look it up. In the, it is with the, uh, the, the Battle of Theropylae. Uh, his his armies are just decimated in a single battle. Totally uh, outnumbered the Greeks, but the Greeks had a different strategy. He they absolutely pounced the the, the uh, Persians and routed them. His navy of 300 ships was was also decimated at a place called Salamis. Um, I, I may be saying that one wrong, but anyway. Uh, so all that happens between chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 2, for, for all intents and purposes, is he chooses a new queen, and her name is Esther. Uh, chapter 3, Haman, the bad guy, is promoted to be prime minister. He, is, he then puts into motion a... Uh, uh, a decree to exterminate 15 million Jews within the Persian Empire, <clears throat> thus causing great confusion throughout the empire. In chapter 4, Mordecai encourages Esther to get involved. And, and one of the most quoted verses in all the scripture is Esther chapter 4, Verse 14, it says, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their uh, enlargement, excuse me, and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall, uh, shall be destroyed. And this is, this is the most quote, probably one of the most quoted sections of all scripture. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Mordecai reminds Esther, hey, you have a duty to your people. And Esther, <clears throat> at that point, asked everybody to fast for her for three days and three nights. In chapter 5, Esther uh, risks her life and goes before the king uh, unannounced and uninvited. What's, what that means is that... It, it, had the king not lowered his scepter to Esther when she entered his chamber in the, the, the throne room, uh, she, she would have been killed instantly. But through mercy, uh, God spared her life. And Esther, in chapter 5, holds the first of two banquets. Uh, Haman becomes furious at Mordecai for not bowing to him. And then, and then chapter 6, we see a twist in events, and, and God works it out where the king can't sleep, and, and a story is read, read to him uh, from the chronicles of the king, and he, and he realizes he never 
uh, paid honor to Mordecai, the good guy, uh, for something that he did. And, and, uh, and again, and this is a simple overview here, so I'm missing a lot of parts to it. But uh, anyway, um, uh, Haman, the bad guy, ends up having to honor Mordecai, the good guy. And it just, it just fries him, and he gets even madder. And in, verse, in chapter 7, we see the second banquets. And then that during the second banquet, Esther reveals to Haman, or, or excuse me, reveals to the king that Haman was trying to kill her and her people. And if you remember the story, the king gets furious and has Haman put to death. And then last week we <clears throat> looked at chapter 8, and Mordecai was promoted to prime minister and took the place of Haman. And a new decree was sent out to counterman the first decree. So, now, everybody understands the book of Esther now, right? It's it's clear as mud, right? (laughs) But I want to stop for a second, and because, and, and I've said this from the very beginning, I've said it multiple times, because the, the, the story of the book of Esther is so interesting, we get so caught up in the story, we forget the purpose of the story. What is the purpose of the story? God is in control. I don't know about you, but I have had in multiple times in, in my short 58 years of life, I have felt there have been times where God wasn't in control. Am I the only one? The whole purpose of this book is to remind us that God is in control. No matter what we think, no matter what the circumstances look like, no matter what is taking place, in our crazy, and, and I'm telling you here, I have never seen our world in the state that it's in the, the, this, this, this morning. People going into Walmart just shooting innocent people for no reason. It, it's insanity. And when we see things like this, we can think, okay, God, where are you? What is going on? But I'm here to tell you, God is in control. I've read the end of the book, and we win. I was speaking with a pastor friend of mine who is also a Messianic Jew. Uh, And I was telling him that, that I was concluding this morning a study on the book of Esther, and, and he says, oh, well, he says, I don't call it the book of Esther when I preach out of that book. He says, I call it the book of irony. And I thought, well, that's an interesting thought. And then I, I, started, I started thinking about it. What, is, what does irony mean? Irony is, let me read you the definition that I found. Uh, when there is a difference between what we expect to happen and what actually happens. Is that not irony? And is that not defying the book of Esther? 
because everybody expected one thing to happen when in reality God was working behind the scenes, putting the right pieces of the puzzle together to accomplish what he wanted, not what people expected. There are two irony, irony, ironies, ironies, okay, in the book of Esther. The first one is the difference between man's plan and God's plan. See, Haman, the, 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 the bad guy in the story, had his plan. He wanted the extermination of the Jews. That was his plan. But God had other plans. Throughout the book, it is obvious as readers to we can see how God put the pieces of the puzzle together, can we not? But picture yourself in the story. Would you have always have known that God was in control? If you were a, a Jewish person living in Persia, would you have known from the get-go that God was, was doing what he was doing? Absolutely not. You would have had no idea. The second ir- irony here is that when truth becomes apparent, through a person who is strictly unaware of it. In other words, God using someone to accomplish his will, and they have no idea what they're doing. Every one of the major characters, the king, Haman, Mordecai, and Esther, every one of them was a tool of God, and they had no idea. Let's start reading in chapter 9, in verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, that is, the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's commandment and his decree drew near uh, to be put in uh, execution, uh, in the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, though it was turned to the contrary, that the Jews had rule over them that hated them. And the Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of the king uh, Ahasuerus uh, to lay hand on such as sought them hurt. And no man could withstand them, for for the fear of them fell upon all people. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this day. I want to thank you for your love and for the work that you do in our lives. And Lord, as we conclude this book, I ask that you would specifically speak to our hearts. And Lord, that you would show us and remind us that you are in control. When things are spinning out of control, you are still in control. Help us, dear God, to serve you with our lives. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
<clears throat> the title of my message this morning is God Keeps His Promises. God Keeps His Promises. D-Day has arrived in chapter 9, if you would. <coughs> Excuse me. Haman's evil plan had, had been chosen for a specific day and time, and that day had come. And because of Mordecai's uh, new decree, it, it had changed uh, destruction day to deliverance day. But it... it, it It's an amazing thing, as we as we will see uh, as, as things unfold here. The, there's an absence of God in all of this. Let me ask you a question: Can fear be a good thing? Absolutely, it can be a good thing. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I, I'm afraid of rattlesnakes. And that's a good thing. If I didn't fear rattlesnakes, what would happen? You know, more than likely I'd get bit. See, fear can be a good thing. See, and God speaks about fear to Moses in, in, the, in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 2, verse 25, it says, This day will I begin to put uh, the dread of, of thee and the fear of thee upon the nations <clears throat> that are under the whole heaven, <clears throat> who shall hear report of thee and shall tremble and be anguished because of thee. <clears throat> what, 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 what was God telling Moses here in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 25? Basically, what he was saying was, I am going to go before you as they were tr- wandering in the wilderness. I'm going to go before you. And I'm going to put fear in the hearts of the people in the promised land. And we see this fear being played out through a lady called Rahab. See, they didn't have the internet back then. Yeah, believe it or not. <laughs> you know, how did how did how did news travel? It traveled by by word by word. And somebody would see something and hear something and then they would tell it and, and the next thing you know, things are exaggerated and blown out of proportion. But God was in control of all that. And, and God used uh, <clears throat> uh, this fear and we, again, we see it played out in a lady called Ahab, or, or Rahab uh, in the city of Jericho, which is the first city once the Israelites crossed the river they came to Jericho. And listen, as, as I read here in Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. And, this, and she, being Rahab, said unto the men, being the spies, I know that the Lord hath given you the land. See, Rahab tells the spies, we know that God's given you the land and that your terror is fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when ye came out of Egypt, and what uh, ye did uh, unto the two kings of the Amorites, 
and where <clears throat> on the other side of Jordan, uh, Sion and Og, whom thou, uh, ye utterly destroyed. And as, as soon as we uh, had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did they remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Fear. Now, we have to understand that the word fear here is not necessarily the, the word fear that we use in 21st century America. The word fear that we use has a word, a, a word that, that, we, that we cower and tremble. And, and th this word carries that context, but it, it has more to do with the fact that they absolutely, utterly respected God and the power that God had. And, they, and, and she tells the spies, hey, we know what God did at the Red Sea. We know what, what you know, when, when you had conflict out in the wilderness, the army, your army's utterly destroyed. Well, if you go back and read those stories and those accounts, it wasn't, <clears throat> excuse me, it wasn't Israel that did all those things. It was God that did all those things through Israel. So who, who were the people fearing? They were not fearing the Israelites, but they were fearing the God of the Israelites. And see, it's so important that we figure this out because <clears throat> I, I personally believe that the greatest problem in our world today is a lack of the fear of God. It is, that, it is the lack of fear of God that a person could walk into Walmart and kill 20 people. It is a lack of the fear of God that, that our government can be doing the things that it's doing by killing babies and doing the things that they're doing. Somebody who feared God could never do that. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. What, what's he saying? The, 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 the degradation of the society that Paul was experiencing there uh, uh, under the Roman government was all a result of the fact that they didn't fear God. And here in the book of Esther, we see <coughs> excuse me, uh, a nation who does not fear God. I'm going to read you a portion of scripture out of 2 Timothy chapter 3, specifically verses 1 through 5. And, and these are all benchmarks, if you would, of the what we call the end times. Are we not living in the end times? Well, these benchmarks, I believe, are all rooted in one thing, and that is a lack of the fear of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, 
without natural affections, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fear, uh, fierce, despisers of those things that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, for such, from, excuse me, from such turn away. What you know, one of the one of the statements here that I, I think we often misunderstand is in verse five. It says, "Having a form of godliness." Oftentimes we we see that phrase and we think, "Oh well, you know, they 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 uh, <clears throat> may not be the best Christian." That that's not what that says. What that means is that they they look good on the outside, but their hearts are cold. How does that happen? A lack of the fear of God. Here we see, did I give you the first point? I'm sorry. I did, but I just didn't tell you. Uh, It's in my notes. Why don't you have it? The fear of the Jews, <clears throat> point number one. Now we're going to talk about something interesting, and that is the feast of the Jews. The feast of the Jews. Look at verse 20 of our passage. <clears throat> and Mordecai uh, wrote these things and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in the provinces of the king Ahasuerus, both nigh and far, and established uh, this among them, uh, that they should keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and the 15th day uh, the same yearly, uh, as the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy, and from mourning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting of and joy, and sending uh, portions one to another, and gifts to the poor. Uh, look down to verse 29. <clears throat> then Esther the queen, uh, the daughter of uh, Abihail, uh, and Mordecai the Jew, wrote, with all authority to confirm the second letter of, of Purim. <clears throat> and they sent the letters unto the Jews to the uh, to, uh, excuse me, the 127 provinces, uh, the kingdom of Ahasuerus, with words of peace and truth, to confirm these days of Purim. Purim. I looked it up. It's pronounced Purim. Purim. Anyway, whatever. Purim, Purim, doesn't matter. Um, uh, in, these, in, the, in the times appointed, according to Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen, and uh, enjoined them, uh, and as they had decreed uh, for themselves <clears throat> uh, and for their seed the matter of the, f- of the fasting and the crying, and the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. So basically what we have 
is a created holiday. So there are two things that are glaringly omitted from this holiday. The first one is that nowhere is the command or even a suggestion that praise and honor be given to God. Nowhere in the decree that Mordecai and Esther established to the, to the Jews living in Persia, nowhere does he or she say, you need to give praise and honor to God for what he has brought us through. It was God that delivered us. Nowhere does he say that. He, he calls for a decree and he calls that everybody get together and, and have a feast and, and, and have a, a, a great time together and, and give presents to one another and, and do all these things. But nowhere is there any acknowledgement that God had anything to do with it. The other thing about this feast that I find interesting is that it was not decreed by God, but by man. Nowhere does in, in Scripture in the book of Esther just say, okay, from this point on, God said, let's, let's, let's get together and, and celebrate this great event. Nowhere is God mentioned. And here we have a holiday built around this incredible event, and nowhere has God been given any credit for it. It is sad when a nation forgets the providential events that kept it alive. Now, let me say this again, because this is, this is really critical. It is sad when a nation forgets the providential event, uh, events that kept it alive. It was God that put the right people in the right places at the right time. And all of this stuff played out. But who gets credit for it? Mordecai and Esther. Nowhere does God get credit for it. I'm, I'm going to make another statement here uh, because I think it's in, in, in incredibly important to us today. Let us never forget the providential events that formed a nation. Throughout our history, the hand of God has been proven over and over and over again. But we live in a country today that our government officials, well, I shouldn't say, many of our government officials will do everything they can to wipe out the name of God in our nation. We cannot ever forget what God did to bring this great nation about. Ronald Reagan said this, Without God, there is no virtue because there is no promoting of, of conscience. Without God, we are mired in material, <clears throat> excuse me, in the material. Uh, that, that flat world that tells us only what uh, the senses perceive. Without God, there is no uh, coercing uh, 
of society. Without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. If we ever forget that we are one nation under God, then we will be a nation gone under. And that is exactly where our nation is. That is exactly where the nation of Israel was. They had turned their backs on God. And it was all about Mordecai and Esther and what they had done. In verse 26 of, the, of our passage, it says, Wherefore uh, they call these days Purim, after the, same, uh, after the name of Pur, uh, therefore uh, for all the world, the words of this, this letter uh, and of that which they had seen concerning this matter and which had come unto them. So if you're wondering where the holiday Purim comes from, it comes from the word Pur, which, which literally means to cast lots or to uh, roll the dice, if you would. See, the name of the holiday was based on how that particular day was chosen. If you, if you remember, you were here when we were talking in Esther chapter 3, uh, the, uh, Haman had to pick a day when all of this bad stuff was going to happen to the Jews. So he went to his sorcerers and he said, hey, tell me what day to do this. So they rolled the dice and they determined the day. In verse uh, 7 of chapter 3, it says, In the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Hazuerus, they cast pur, or, or lots, or dice, uh, that is, uh, the lot before Haman from day to day and from month to month, and the twelfth month, uh, that is, the month of Adar. So that is how it was chosen. That particular day of destruction was chosen by pure chance. Or as we talked about then, was that really chance? No, that was God. But the Mordecai and Esther uh, decide to uh, name this holiday uh, Purim because of this game called uh, this game of chance. There is no coincidence in this. It is the hand of God working behind the scenes. Purim is a festival that is that is practiced today, is it not? <clears throat> they, they still they still practice it today. It is it is called the Halloween uh, of holidays for the Jewish people. They dress up in costumes. Most of them are Bible characters, and <clears throat> they come together and they have the big feast and they 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 read the Book of Esther and they do all of this stuff. <clears throat> And it is it is quite the quite the, the the event on the Jewish calendar, and they they exchange presents and and all that stuff. And and they, uh, one of the things that I found interesting is they they teach they use this time to teach their young people the importance of godly character, loyalty, patience, integrity, and trust in God. They they use that to teach all these things, but nowhere is it in the is it in the is it, is it in the scriptures. I find that to be kind of interesting. 
Yeah, they do, exactly. I came across an interesting story I wanted to share with you very quickly. Um, <clears throat> the story is told uh, of Hitler giving one of his fiery speeches in the large uh, hall of Munich early in his rise to power. In his oration, he called for the destruction of the Jewish people. In the front row sat a man who uh, occasionally would make faces and laugh at the Fuhrer. After the meeting, Hitler uh, inquired as to who this man was and why he was making faces and laughing at him. The man explained that he was Jewish and said to Hitler, you should be aware that you are not the first uh, anti-Semite who sought to destroy us. You may uh, recall that the great Pharaoh of Egypt sought to enslave the Jews. To commemorate his defeat and our redemption, we eat uh, tasty uh, matzo. I, I don't know. I've never eaten it. I don't know if it tastes any good. Uh, and observe the festival of Passover. Haman was another enemy of ours who brought about our downfall. Uh, excuse me, brought about his own downfall. Uh, the delicious, I know it's a Jewish word about that long, uh, we eat, and the joyful uh, festival of Purim recall our deliverance from him. While listening to your uh, <clears throat> vehemence diatribe, I wonder what kind of delicacy would the Jews in, in, invent and what kind of holiday would be established to celebrate your downfall? Now, as we know, the, the, to my knowledge, the Jews never did. But I, I, I love the story because, uh, well, chances are this man didn't live much longer. But he was willing to stand up for what was right. And point his fa finger in the face of a man who hated him. And say, you know what? God is in control. There are seven feasts in the holiday calendar of, a, of the Jews. Uh, there are three major uh, feasts. Uh, one, you know, the example would be the Passover and so on and so forth. And then there are four minors, and Purim is one of them. We see this in John chapter 5, verse 1. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And I, to the best of my knowledge, I've done a lot of research on this, many, many theologians believe that this feast in John chapter 5, verse 1, is talking about Purim. <clears throat> and I've always found it interesting that the feast is not identified. It's just called a feast. It, he could have very easily said, that, you know, uh, 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 after this there was a the, the feast of Purim or whatever. But it's he doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't identify the feast. And I thought, I wonder why. And then it dawned on me, you know, the feast of Purim came out of the book of Esther. The book of Esther never acknowledges God in any way, shape, or form. So why should the Son of God acknowledge the feast? Because it's not God-ordained. It's man-ordained. 
Anyway, the story goes on, and and in John, uh, <clears throat> John, well, it, Jesus took took the advantage of of the feast of Purim in John chapter five to teach his disciples about himself, but also to give a great gift because that's what they did at Purim. They gave gifts, did they not? I I think I told you that, didn't I? Okay, yeah, they 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 share gifts. So Jesus shares an incredible gift. In John chapter 5, in verse 2, the story continues. Now uh, there is at Jerusalem by the sheep uh, market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. uh, And and these lay a great multitude of impotent folks, of blind, of halt, uh, withered, uh, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down in a certain season into the pool and troubled the water uh, whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole and whatsoever uh, disease he had and a certain man was there which had an infirmity 30 and 8 years when Jesus saw him lie and he knew that he that he had been uh, how long uh, in the, in that case he saith unto, the, unto him, uh, <clears throat> Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man uh, when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while uh, I am coming, another steppeth down before me. And Jesus said unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. What an incredible gift. What an incredible gift. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked and and uh, and on the same day was the sabbath here we see a demonstration of an incredible gift that our lord gave to this man this gift is also mentioned a chapter earlier when jesus was talking to the samaritan woman at the well in john chapter 4 verse 10 it says and jesus answered and said unto her uh, if thou knowest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, uh, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. <clears throat> See, here it is in John chapter 4, verse 10, identified as the gift of God. What is, what is the gift of God? Uh, in, in John chapter 14, that, that is answered as well. He says, uh, But whosoever drinketh the water, that that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The gift of God is eternal life. What an incredible thing. And here on the holiday of Purim, the Son of Man gives the greatest gift that could ever be given. What a beautiful picture. In chapter 10, it's not the shortest chapter in the Bible. I looked that up. It's not the shortest chapter, but it's definitely one of the shortest chapters. There's only three verses. I want to close this morning by reading these verses. See if you can pick out the theme of these three verses. And the king, Ahasuerus, laid a tribute upon the land and upon the isles of the sea and all the the acts of his power and of his might and and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai 
whereunto the king advanced him. <clears throat> Are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of the Medes and Persians? For Mordecai the Jew was next unto the king, Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people and seeking peace to all his seed. To me, I find chapter 10 to be very disturbing because chapter 10 is about the king, but primarily about Mordecai. How very sad. What an incredible opportunity Mordecai could have had to have ended this incredible book with a declaration of praise to a Heavenly Father who put all the pieces into place, who brought the salvation of 15 million Jews, who did all these things, and yet not a word of praise to God for it. As I was reading chapter 10, a thought came to me. If today was my last day here on earth, and, and I had the opportunity, God came to me and says, hey, you're getting ready to die within an hour. I want you to write a chapter about your life. I wonder what it would look like. Would it look like, uh, oh, he accomplished this and he did this and he did this and he did this? I hope not. I hope that if God gave me that opportunity that I would have nothing but praise and glory for the God who saved me and has changed my life. What would your chapter look like if it were you? Here we have read an incredible story. We have, we, have, we have studied an incredible journey of people who <clears throat> thought they were in control, but ultimately they found out that God was in control. And so many times in our lives, life seems to be spinning out of control. And God has to ground us periodically and remind us, no, no, I'm in control. What would the chapter of your book look like? If there was a, a book of Rick, what would the last chapter look like? I hope and pray it would be full of praise and honor to an almighty God. As we close, let's, let's ponder that thought. Do you fear, do you have reverence for the God of heaven? Do you realize that he is ultimately in control? Not you. Let's pray.